The Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, Same-sex marriage rights. Closed the state's last abortion Ashton provider. Has now apologized to his congregation. The Bible has application for every would violate her views as a Southern Baptist. The problem is also not just the In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, is in hot water following a series of reports alleging self-dealing, mocking students and staff, and nurturing a culture of fear. But are these reports true? Welcome to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. And if you follow the news, you've likely heard a lot about Jerry Falwell and Liberty University lately. Last week, Reuters published several emails by Falwell where he speaks disparagingly about those at the college. In one, he calls a student retarded. and another, he calls his police chief a halfwit. But earlier last week, Politico published an article with much more serious charges. It alleged that Falwell used Liberty to make deals and loans to enrich his family and friends. For example, Falwell reportedly hired his son, Trey Falwell, to manage a shopping center that the school owns. And Liberty loaned a construction company owned by Falwell's good friend, Robert Moon, a quarter of a million dollars to start his company. Then, according to Politico, Liberty awarded Moon's company more than $130 million in contracts. Of course, if Liberty were a private business owned by Falwell, that would be his prerogative. But Liberty is a nonprofit university funded in part by donations. And using a nonprofit for personal enrichment is strictly prohibited by the law. The Politico article also alleged that administrators and faculty at Liberty are terrified of speaking out against Falwell. One current high-level employee reportedly called it a dictatorship. Another employee reportedly said, everybody is scared for their life. Everybody walks around in fear. But a major problem with the Politico article is that it relied heavily on anonymous sources. The author, Brandon Ambrosino, said he talked to more than two dozen current and former high-ranking Liberty University officials and close associates of Falwell, yet none went on the record, supposedly because they were all too afraid. Yet that's a huge problem. In an age where there have been major scandals involving media outlets inventing stories and sources, that's not okay. But today on this program, I have a former dean at Liberty who's going to speak on the record publicly for the very first time. And I should clarify, this former dean has never before spoken to the press about this issue, so he's not one of the anonymous sources in the Politico article. His name is Mark Tinsley. He's currently a pastor at Amelon United Methodist Church in Madison Heights, Virginia. But from 2012 until 2017, he worked at Liberty University, first as a department chair, then as an associate dean, and finally as the dean of the College of General Studies. So, Mark, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you join me. It's good to be here, Julie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And also joining me today is another former Liberty employee who actually has spoken on the record to the press. His name is Brian Melton, and he is quoted at length in a Washington Post story that published in July called Inside Liberty University's Culture of Fear. Brian taught at Liberty for 15 years as an associate professor of history. He also served for a time as the chair of the Curriculum Committee and moderator of the Faculty Senate. 
He resigned in 2018 and now is a senior lecturer at Adam Mickey University in Poznan, Poland. Brian, thank you so much for joining us all the way from uh, Poland. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I should also mention that I reached out to Scott Lamb. He's the vice president of university communications at Liberty. We spoke on Friday, and I invited him or President Falwell to join us today. Um, Scott asked me to text him back at his cell phone, and I did that, uh, but he did not uh, respond to that. So I'm assuming that Liberty does not want to be part of this, but we did invite them. And in, in fairness, I always do that. I always reach out to Uh, anybody who's a part of the discussion to see if they want to join, especially when it's of this kind of nature. Um, However, Jerry Falwell has responded to the reports by saying uh, in some uh, other reports to the press that he's a target of an illegal smear campaign. Falwell says that some of the emails that were leaked to the press in the Politico article uh, were technically university property, and he says he's called the FBI to investigate. He also says He's going to sue anybody who did that in civil courts. Um, he also says this is a part of an attempted coup against him. And these, these charges aren't true. Uh, it's just the smear campaign and an attempted coup. So, um, Brian and, and Mark, I should just just ask you, did you leak any emails to, to the press? Are you a part of any of that? Yeah, no, for Mark, I, myself, not. I abs- yeah, absolutely not. Okay, so you're not a part of that. Um, no, nope, and Mark, I'm not either, so. Okay, but they may have an uphill battle. According to uh, the AP article, they quoted a cybercrime expert, Nick Ackerman, who said Falwell's assertion of a criminal conspiracy, he called it totally insane. He said that ex-board members and employees can share emails with reporters as long as they have uh, authorized access to them and didn't hack into someone else's account. So um, we are not going to talk about I don't think any of the self-dealing, because as I talked to you, uh, Brian and Mark, uh, before this um, show, you said that's not something that you have knowledge of. And what I want to talk about is what you have firsthand information of. What were you an eyewitness to? Because what I want to do is get to the truth. And are some of these allegations uh, in these articles, can you corroborate them? And it seems like um, the self-dealing isn't one. Um, and as far as knowing Falwell personally, uh, Brian, have you ever met Jerry Falwell Jr. personally? Uh, no, not not really. Uh, as, as we discussed before the show, my closest encounter with Jerry Falwell Jr. was actually one day after a, a doctor's appointment ran over late, and I was rushing into a building to try to get to my class, and he saw me coming and thought I was a student who was running late. And he asked me if I wanted an excuse to get into class, and I told him as I rushed past that, uh, no, I'm the professor, and he, <laughs> he got a kick out of that. And uh, I made it to class only a few minutes late. But, uh, no, I, I have no personal knowledge of uh, Jerry Falwell, and I have no, nothing to add to that, and I have added nothing to that. Yeah, probably not the way you want to meet the president of your university if you're a professor, but <laughs> it is what happened. Um, and Mark, um, what about you? You were a dean at the university. Did you have any contact with Jerry Falwell Jr.? No, the only contact I ever uh, had with him was at a, a, a gathering at the football stadium um, several years back, uh, and I passed by him. I may have shaken his hand. I can't remember. But that is the only uh, only contact, only time I've ever been in the same room with him. Yeah, and Liberty's a massive school. How many students there? 
It's over 100,000 right now, that is... combining uh, online and residential students. You've got somewhere around 12,000 residential students right now. Yeah, very, very large school. Um, but as we talked a little bit, um, how involved, you, we were talking about this, Mark, how involved is Jerry Falwell Jr. as a president in the running of the school from your perspective as a dean? Well, and I think I can speak from the perspective of the academic side of the university. And I would honestly say, uh, and this is an objective statement, in my experience, and I think in the experience of most of the folks in the department where I worked, he was a, really a non-presence. Um, he rarely attended faculty meetings, faculty get-togethers. Um, uh, we didn't see him around the offices, uh, places of work. Uh, he didn't walk the campus. His dad had a great reputation of walking the campus, uh, Jerry Falwell Sr., and going by the departments and talking to people. I remember one occasion when uh, Fall, Jerry Falwell Sr. came by the seminary when I was working there, and he uh, he talked to us about what, how the seminary was the rudder of the university. It was a really inspiring thing to have the, the president uh, of the university to say those things to you. But we never saw Jerry Falwell Jr. in that way. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, he was just a non-presence on campus. We didn't, we didn't see him on a day-to-day basis uh, at all. So what we're going to be talking about today, then, isn't something where you've had firsthand experience with Falwell, but more about how the school operates, and it's particularly this culture of fear at the school. And we only have about a minute or so before we have to go to break, but let me throw that to you, Brian. You've talked a little bit about tenure or they're not being tenure, and how the school kind of uses that with professors. Can you briefly just kind of get us started on that? Yes, uh, very much in a nutshell. Liberty has always operated on one-year contracts. The original idea behind that was so that they could stop leftward drift. That was the, the problem that places like Harvard and Princeton had had, that once tenured professors had gotten in, you couldn't get them out, and then they would take the university farther and farther away from its Christian roots. But starting about 2007 uh, and really hitting the fan about 2014, 2015, uh, after uh, Jerry Jr. became fully in in control of the university, it really became a a method of control. Mm -hmm. Everyone was reminded very, very often that you're on a one-year contract, that this does not have to be renewed, and that if you, not in so many words, but if you step out of line, if you do something that makes someone unhappy with you, then that's going to be you're it. Gonna, that's it. That's going to be it. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Again, that is Brian Melton, a former associate professor of history at Liberty University. Also, Mark Tinsley, a former dean at Liberty, joining me today. I'm Julie Royce. You're listening to the Royce Report. We will be right back after a short break. Every day we face the temptation to live only in the moment. But this week, Alistair Begg reminds us we need to live each day in light of God's coming kingdom. Hear practical biblical lessons Monday through Friday on Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. Hello, I'm Alistair Begg, and I invite you to listen to Truth For Life, Monday morning at 7.30 on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. now return to the Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. Oh, well, are the reports about Jerry Falwell and Liberty University true, or are they simply a result of an attempted coup and an illegal smear campaign? 
Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and joining me today is a former dean and former associate professor at Liberty. And I'm asking them about numerous reports that have been published about Liberty and Falwell. These reports have accused Liberty President Jerry Falwell Jr. of berating employees and students and of cultivating a culture of fear and self-dealing at the school. But the most explosive expose, which was published last week in Politico, relied heavily on anonymous sources. So today what I've done is I have two sources who are willing to go on the record with their firsthand experiences. By the way, you can join the conversation about this show online by going to Facebook.com slash Reach Julie Royce, and Royce is spelled R-O-Y-S, or you can reach us on Twitter by using our handle at Reach Julie Royce. Well, joining me today is Mark Tinsley, a former dean of the College of General Studies at Liberty University, and Brian Melton, a former associate professor of history and also uh, part of the faculty senate. So, gentlemen, um, before the break, Brian, you were explaining about how um, there's no tenure at Liberty. Instead, uh, every year, it's a one-year contract, and you're saying that this was used by the administration to get control over the professors. And frequently you're, you're, you're told, um, get in line or else you're going to lose your contract. What's the impact that has on the faculty when you have a system like that? Well, I think uh, probably one of the best ways to sum it up was something that Jerry Jr. himself said. I think it was to the New York Times when he said the big victory uh, was taming the faculty. Uh, which, of course, using a uh, an analogy comparing the faculty to animals that are beasts of burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really does have that kind of chilling effect on people's ability to speak out, uh, especially given the fact that for conservatives in, in general and conservative Christians in particular in academics, jobs are very hard to come by. Uh, and so if you lose a job at a place like Liberty, then there's a very strong probability that you will not be able to find one either for years or again. So the idea of losing that one ability to feed your family is uh, is a very serious threat. Uh, mm. And it's something that the, that the administration definitely used to uh, keep the faculty in line. Well, and, and when you're saying that, though, when you're saying keep them in line, um, there's probably a lot of sympathy with people listening to keeping faculty in line who are drifting left on doctrinal issues, for example. I think some, a lot of us are frustrated when we see that at colleges, that, that that's allowed to happen and it continues to happen. But is that really the kind of thing that it was, I mean, what, what was stepping out of line at Liberty? Yeah, that, that was certainly uh, the, the way it began. It was not what it became. Stepping out of line was uh, complaining about academic quality in the classes, uh, asking too many questions uh, of, a, of a particular administrative uh, set of goals uh, or program or plan. Uh, it, it can also be grading too harshly. Mm-hmm. If uh, you didn't have a, a certain success rate, even if the students were not performing to the level that you would expect uh, of a college of a college level uh, uh, course, then you could lose your position or at least lose your load mm-hmm. over uh, over that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were absolutely no guarantees. So let's talk about turnover now and kind of the, the culture among the administrators. Um, Mark, you told me about something that I haven't really seen reported on, and that is a huge shakeup in the provost's office around, what was it, 2016, 2017. So tell me about that. 
Yeah, so in around uh, November of 2016, things were trucking along at the university and the College of General Studies like they had always been, uh, business as usual. And uh, suddenly, I'm, I'm the, I was the associate dean of the College of General Studies at the time. I reported to the dean of the College of General Studies at that time, uh, and Emily Hetty, who also served is, as a vice provost in the provost office. So she had dual hats. And uh, I remember the day. It was November the 15th. Uh, 2016, I'd been having correspondence that morning with Emily um, about matters in CGS. Uh, the, the mood had been light. We, our emails, had, we'd had a few jokes here and there in the emails. And when I emailed her at 11.30 a.m. that morning, after several emails already that day, I got a reply back that said uh, something to the effect of, I'm not, I'm not at the university right now. If you have any questions, contact the provost, Dr. Ron Hawkins. thought that was interesting. So uh, we went on and um, uh, I called and, and, and talked to Dr. Hawkins, got you know, a lot of non-answers. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing led to another. Uh, and by December the 9th, I got an email from Emily Hetty saying, I no longer work at the university. Very much a, a stressful time for all of us. Uh, I sought answers from the provost's office and, and, and got none. Uh, the answers were, it's something we can't talk about. Uh, you don't need to know. Continue to lead the College of General Studies. We'll get back to you, <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing led to another there. It really called a, a stir within the, within the college and within the you know, entire university because Emily was such a beloved person and a, a beloved administrator. Uh, all expected her to become the next provost when Dr. Hawkins retired. Uh, it was assumed later that year or maybe in the next year or two. But uh, it, things really started to snowball at that point. Uh, we started to get word that my asso- the other associate dean in the department with me, that uh, he was going to get sacked by the provost office, presumably for being too close to Dr. Hetty. Uh, I warned him of that, and uh, he went on and resigned. Um, uh, I went on uh, soon thereafter and resigned myself, uh, not wanting to be uh, associated with these types of underhanded tactics. I knew Emily Hetty very well. I knew her character. I knew the person that she is today still, certainly was at the time. So did so you talk to her? Of, did you talk? I'm guessing yes. you talked to oh, her. And yeah. I don't but, know how much know, you're at liberty to, say, yeah. to share, but, I mean, what was your, your sense? Well, she wasn't at liberty to say a whole lot because mm-hmm. she was under, they had somehow forced her to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So we talked about, uh, you know, her future and a lot of those things. But the sense that, you know, you get in any of these conversations and talking to someone, uh, they don't have to say, I mean, you, you know the person well enough to know their character. And, and, and I knew that she had not done anything underhanded or deceitful and she made a statement to that you know that everything was she didn't do anything wrong you know and so i knew that things were fine with her and her character and all of this uh, in the months that, that followed uh that uh the resignation of the, you know, her, her being well she resigned i mean she resigned under non-disclosure mm-hmm. and then the other associate dean resigned i resigned and then in the months that followed at least four other faculty members and staffers resigned as well. Um, and so in a matter of 
six to eight months, 10 months or so, you had about seven to eight faculty members and, and some staffers that, that because of matters of integrity and, and weren't not wanting to work in an environment of culture of fear any longer, decided to walk away and move on to other things. So you really felt in a real culture of fear, intimidation, this isn't something where Politico's just making it up. You're saying, yeah, it was real. Oh, absolutely. It was absolutely real. Um, people regularly talked about the fear that they had in, in, in formal and informal ways. I mean, as an associate dean and dean, I, I had people come by my office at times and talk about their fears, especially when contract time was coming around, uh, talking about fears uh, of, of non-renewal and those types of things. We're always having to to, uh, to address those kinds of issues with the faculty. And so you had to be loyal. And, uh, was this a culture where loyalty is, is the top, loyalty to Jerry Falwell Jr. is the top goal or the, the top value, or what is driving it? I don't know that it was, any of us felt it was absolute loyalty to Jerry Falwell Jr., but we did feel it was absolute loyalty to the institution. You didn't feel at liberty to, uh, as Brian said earlier, to make any statements adversely toward uh, to, the, to the university or the curriculum or any of the executive offices or anyone. I mean, it had to be, I always, always called it uh, an, an environment of hyper loyalty. It was loyalty without question. It was blind loyalty, really, is what folks felt mm. was expected of them. And it seemed to be expected because when anyone stepped out of line and made any kind of critical comment, uh, they were they were let go. Well, that's Mark Tinsley, a former dean at Liberty University. Also joining me today, Brian Melton, a former associate professor of history and moderator of the Faculty Senate at Liberty. I'm Julie Royce, and you're listening to The Royce Report. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a situation where Mark was pressured by the administration to do something that he didn't want to do. We'll be right back after a short break. Church scandals have left many people hurt and disillusioned. After being abused or manipulated by church leaders, some wonder if they can ever trust Jesus or Christian leaders again. That's why Julie Royce and Judson University are hosting Restore Chicago, a one-day conference on Saturday, November 2nd, to restore faith in God and the church. Restore will address how to survive abuse with your faith intact, why, despite hurt and disappointment, we can still believe in the church, and why we're in the midst of an unmistakable move of God to purify His bride. Speakers include Nancy Beach, a former teaching pastor at Willow Creek who exposed abuse by Bill Hybels, and Julie Royce, whose investigative reporting has led to major change in the Christian community. Josh Caterer of The Smoking Popes will be leading worship, and other special guests will share testimonies of hope. Don't miss this unique and healing gathering Saturday, November 2nd at Judson University. For more information, go to RestoreChicagoConference.com. Now, more of the Roy's Report. Once again, here's Julie Roy's. Is Jerry Falwell Jr. the target of an attempted coup and an illegal smear campaign, or are the accusations about his administration true? Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're discussing a very hot topic in the news right now. As you've likely heard, there were two explosive reports published last week. An article by Reuters included emails from Falwell in which he called a Liberty University student retarded and an employee a halfwit. But the more serious allegations were published by Politico. 
That article included multiple examples and documentation of alleged self-dealing at Liberty. For example, the article mentioned that Falwell hired his son, Trey Falwell, to manage a shopping center owned by the school. And Liberty loaned a construction company owned by Falwell's good friend, Robert Moon, a quarter of a million dollars to start the company. Then, according to Politico, Liberty awarded Moon's company more than $130 million in contracts. Again, Liberty is a nonprofit university, so using the university for any personal enrichment is prohibited by law. But Politico, that article, also included numerous anonymous sources claiming that Falwell nurtured a culture of fear at the school. The article said people were too scared of Falwell to go on the record, but it claimed that the sources that were cited in there were current and former high-ranking employees of Liberty University and associates of Falwell's. In response, Falwell has claimed that he's the target of an attempted coup and a smear campaign at the school, and he's announced his intentions to sue those who have spoken out against him or leaked these emails. So are the allegations against Jerry Falwell Jr., are they true or simply this result of a smear campaign? Well, joining me today are two former employees with firsthand knowledge of the situation at Liberty, and unlike the political sources, they're not appearing on my program anonymously. Their names are Mark Tinsley, a former dean of the College of General Studies uh, at Liberty University, and Brian Melton, a former associate professor of history and chairman of the faculty senate at Liberty. Mark resigned from Liberty in 2017, and Brian resigned last year. And by the way, if you're just joining us and missed the first part of the show, the entire audio will be posted soon after this broadcast to my website, julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. That's julieroys.com. I also want to mention that I did invite Jerry Falwell or another representative from Liberty to appear on the show, but they didn't respond to my invitation. So, gentlemen, let me just ask you this because, okay, Brian, you're in Poland now, so I'm guessing you feel like you're outside of the reach of Jerry Falwell Jr. But, Mark, you're right there in Virginia, and I know in this Politico article it was saying people are afraid not just those who are employees of the college, but just living in the town because of the power and the reach of the Falwell family. Do you feel afraid? No, no, I don't feel afraid. And that's not a cavalier attitude at all. Um, you know, I, and I think Brian would feel the same way. We're, you know, we just see a lot of our friends and former colleagues that are undergoing a lot of stress right now. They're, they're, they're in a place that many of them don't want to be. Um, they're being oppressed right now. They live in fear. And I think for me, I can speak for myself. I'm just tired of, of people you know, t- taking courageous stands in one sense, but not putting their names to it in another. I, my mom and dad raised me to, if you're going to say something about somebody, have, you know, put your name to it. Now I'm not criticizing the people that went anonymous. I know there are reasons for that. But for me, I feel that it's it's an obligation. I have I have some things that it might be inspiring to some of our faculty that, that that would see and hear me and Brian, and would say, you know, there's a voice out there. There's someone who does care and someone who will put their name to this. And then secondly, um, you know, I, I I preached on Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 just this past Sunday, and it says, "Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be afraid." For I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you Mm. with my victorious right hand. Mm. And if I truly believe that passage of Scripture, then then I should stand up and not be fearful. Mm. Amen. And there's a freedom, isn't there, when you speak out and you take the consequences, whatever they they are, and 
and you just move on with life. But there's a freedom to speak your mind and to say what you what you feel and what you believe. Um, Brian, let me throw this to you real quick. I know I said before the break that we're going to talk a little bit about a course that was dropped and kind of there was some pressure around that. And I want to talk to Mark about that. But first, you had mentioned just real briefly that there was something said, what was it, at faculty orientation every year? Oh, yes. Uh, it's, it's a. I think one of the best examples of uh, sort of how this uh, culture was passed along and emphasized in such a way, uh, almost involving, you know, sort of the stereotypical Christianese uh, where I'm encouraging you, but at the same time I'm threatening you. Uh, there was this announcement they always used to give um, where they ended everything by saying, now we just want you to know, and this is not a threat. We're not threatening you, but there are hundreds of people lined up for your job. <laughs> and that uh, uh, the, the, even though we get, get resumes all the time, we're very happy to say that we don't want you. We've got the people we want. Now, this is not a threat. And, of course, you look at that, uh, and every faculty member that I knew looked at that, and they're like, no, no, that is a threat. Mm. Uh, nobody in their right mind would not take that as a threat. Uh, and, in fact, it was a very special kind of threat because it insulted your intelligence as much as it threatened you. Uh, and I, I, I joke sometimes that you know I, I wonder why they had why they hired me to teach college history if they thought I was so stupid that I would fall for that. I mean, truly, you want somebody smarter than that. But uh, it, it was a good example of ways they found to remind you of how temporary you were, and how even though, like Mark said, they they expected so much loyalty from you. Yeah. Once you got beyond the dean level, there was none toward you. Mm. Well, let me let me ask you, Mark, uh, this this situation that happened, uh, we probably won't have time to tell that much of it in this in this segment, but we'll get to it in the next one, too. But Mm -hmm. what happened somewhere where there was a there was a course that was a favorite of yours and one that seemed to do very well that the school wanted to get rid of? It was an introductory level freshman seminar type course, but it taught andragogy, adult learning. And uh, we had run this course for a couple of years and gotten some wonderful data on it that students who took it uh, had better retention at the university, students who took it um, scored better in their subsequent classes at the university. I mean, all the data was showing, hey, you want your, you want your students to take this course. Uh, however, some folks on the other side of the college in enrollment management uh, in the business side of the college didn't like the course because it was another course students had to take. It was another required course. So... Uh, for a long time, the course had had a, it stated that if a student came in with 60 credit hours or credit, half their degree done, they didn't have to take this course. So that was a bit of a win for the business side of the university because mm-hmm. some students didn't have to take it. Uh, however, the university wanted us to drop that down to 45 credits. And yet this There's was communicated four- to you in a meeting with one of the administrators, correct? Well, it had been communicated in several meetings. I mean, it's being discussed for a while. Okay. Well, hold that thought. We're going to need to go to break. When we come back from break, we'll continue this whole story about about this course, and it'll give just sort of an insight. I think it's an interesting window into how things operate uh, there at Liberty. And I know this is a school for both you, Brian, and you, Mark, that you still love, that you still want to see thrive. And I know that's part of why you're speaking out. Again, you're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. Joining me today, Mark Tinsley, a former dean at, U- at Liberty University, and Brian Melton, a former associate professor of history. We will be right back after a short break. Thank you for listening to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's. The Roy's Report is a listener-supported program. 
and we're only able to broadcast this program with donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to see this quality program continue, please go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and click on the Donate button. And as a thank you for your gift of any size, we'll send you the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by the late famed apologist Norm Geisler. Just go to julieroys.com and click on the Donate button. This is The Royce Report with Julie Royce. Are the allegations against Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. true? Welcome back to The Royce Report. I'm Julie Royce, and today I'm exploring the recent allegations against Falwell that were published in both Politico and Reuters last week. These accused Falwell of mocking employees and students, using the college to enrich his family and friends, and nurturing a culture of fear. And by the way, if you're just joining the program and want to listen to the entire broadcast, or if you just want to share it with friends, the entire audio will be available shortly after this broadcast at julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. That's julieroys.com, and then you click on the podcast tab. Again, joining me today are two men with firsthand knowledge of the culture at Liberty. Until 2017, Mark Tinsley worked at Liberty as the dean of the College of General Studies, and until 2018, Brian Melton worked as an associate professor at Liberty and the chairman of the Faculty Senate. Um, so, Mark, we talked just briefly about what was happening about this one course um, where the administration wanted you to get rid of this course. You didn't want to get rid of it. Um, tell me how this showdown came came to blows. Well, it wasn't that we wanted, they wanted to get rid of it, but they wanted to reduce the credit hour requirement for it. So it went, originally it was 60 hours. You came with 60 hours of credit as a transfer student. You didn't have to take the uh, this freshman seminar course that had been shown again to be have a positive impact on student student success. They wanted us to drop that down to 45 credit hours so that even fewer students would have to take it. Well, we didn't agree with that because the course was showing so much success. And so, in order for that to happen, the College of General Studies had to vote in its General Studies Committee for that change to occur in a process called. The FIO process for information only process. I know it's kind of a weird title, but we had to vote that. We went into the meeting to vote. And I've got, this is how the culture of fear works, uh, Julie, is that uh, we took minutes like you do in meetings, but we also took alternate minutes. And I'm going to read some of the alternate minutes from you that are unofficial, but these were the ones that we took to say what really happened to that meeting. The first vote that occurred. Got one yes vote, one no vote on a group of about 10 to 12 persons. All the others abstained. Hmm. Uh, then one of the faculty members said, well, is this going to, if we vote no to this change, is this going to hurt Mark and our other associate dean, or the associate dean, to go put him at risk? Another faculty member stood up and said, it absolutely will. He said, I don't agree with this change, but I'm going to vote yes for it to protect our leaders, because if we do not protect them, who knows who we're going to get to, re- who's going to replace them? Who's going to come down here to, to lead us? So we voted again, and it passed that time. And so we sent it on, and, of course, the change was made. But, uh, yeah, you, you know, I, we had, it, it was just amazing. I mean, I stood there in awe as the moderator of this group. Because I had told them in the beginning, you guys vote your conscience. Don't vote, just vote your conscience. And their conscience was most abstained, one voted yes, one voted no. When we went back and voted what we knew they wanted, then the vote came out the right way. And, and the thing is, I, I failed to mention this, is prior to this meeting, I had a visit from one of the vice provosts. 
in my office where he sat down, closed door, just him, me. And he said, we need this to pass. This will pass. And he sent me an email prior to that, Julie, that um, didn't say that in those words, but you could read between the lines in the email and see. He said, we need this to be done in 21 days or less. You know, read between those lines hmm. and you know, get this done. So, and that was how they, 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 they advised this change without consultation of the general studies. This came in an email. We've already, they, they had rewritten the FIO. So they're really, they're, they're the not FIO. asking for yeah. a vote. They're, no, they're telling you the vote, they're, right? They're telling you what to do. Yeah. And okay. so that was unfortunate. Tell me too about the, you said in the vice, in the provost's office, we talked about a shakeup. Um, then you had this situation happen, but then there were a bunch of, uh, of other provosts that came through in, in a very rapid fire manner, wasn't there? I mean, there was like, what'd you say? No less than five turnovers in the provost's office yeah. within no what, less a couple than five changes in, in since mid 2017. And the changes are still occurring. I mean, recently the current provost was, there was recently a second provost added another co-provost situation. Hmm. where they now have a provost for and chief academic officer for the residential side and an online provost. So, so that office is continually in flux, it seems. I mean, are, are you telling me that there's so much turnover, this is such a crisis at this point, that, I mean, is this sustainable at the same time? that the, the school is doing well. I mean, enrollment is, is extremely yeah. healthy. Um, I talk to parents. I talk to um some faculty and I mean, beautiful faculty, the students, from what mm-hmm. I hear, there was a pro, there was a protest on Friday instead of it yeah. being contrarian, like the two sides, apparently started talking to each other and debating it politely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these are beautiful people at this school. Um, but yep. what you're describing, that kind of turnover, that's hard to sustain a school. It is. And it makes for a lot of chaos and uncertainty. And all that uncertainty and chaos adds to the culture of fear. Huh. Um, yeah. So do you it, think it, it will last? I mean, situation. or do you think there needs to be a change in the administration or if there's not? And when I say administration, I mean, everybody seems to be pointing the figure at the top at the president. Right. Well, I think something has to change. You can't sustain this kind of turnover indefinitely. Um, it, it, it just won't. And it's going to start to hurt their accreditation. I mean, you can't have this kind of turnover consistently and the accreditors. Uh, not see that and ask questions. Well, in the self-dealing allegations, I mean, that's very serious. And I know accreditors look at that sort of stuff, too. So, Absolutely. And, and that, I would say the Politico article had so much documentation um, that, that that was probably the strongest part, I thought, uh, of the entire article. The, the anonymous sources, not so much. The documentation for the self-dealing, and that's a very serious charge, um, that was much stronger. Both of you gentlemen have told me about something that exists. Uh, Mark, you have a name for it. You call it like the underground. Um, tell me a little bit about this, because this is, is really stunning to me um, about this whole underground and how it operates. Well, well the, the name, the underground, comes from a, a former, a friend of mine who's a former employee as well. I'll give him credit. I won't name him. But, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's an unofficial network of current and former faculty and employees of the university that are constantly talking. The interesting thing about this is I don't know how big this network is, but it's, it's got to reach back into the top executive levels. And because I told you before the show, Julie, that every prediction that, that I've heard through this underground network has come true. 
mm-hmm. every one of them. We knew about provosts that were being moved and going to be sacked. Uh, we even knew about one of the provosts who went to another school. We heard that he was going to be fired from that school before he was fired, before it came out in the news. All of the things that we've heard through this network have come true 100%. And um, so it's got to reach back. So this uh, shows, the highest levels. The, yeah, this shows there, uh, that the discontent you're saying is is rife, not just among the faculty, which Brian, you spoke to, not just among, you know, the deans, kind of the level of administration you were at, but, but to have that level of knowledge of what's going on, we're talking pretty high up at the school there seems to be people think, who are speaking. I would think, and, 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 you know, I only know about eight people in the, in this unofficial underground network. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, each of my eight contacts probably has eight or 10 contacts and each of those have eight or 10 contacts. I can imagine that this network is huge. But you don't know everybody that's in it. Brian, you're in this network. Uh, I, I assume so. I, I also heard the news about the, uh, the the provost getting sacked from the other school before it actually happened. Uh, and personally, I think that uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, someone, one of the anonymous sources in the Politico article said that this isn't a Christian thing, this is a right or wrong thing. And frankly, I think I have to strongly disagree with that and say that I think it is a Christian thing. Mm. And I think that a lot of the very strong Christians who are at the university are seeing these things and deploring them uh, and feeling that uh, even if they can just do nothing other than pass information to someone else uh, or give them some encouragement, uh, that it's something that's very much worthwhile. Hmm. Gentlemen, we have just enough time, I think, to to touch on one other thing that you talked to me about, and it was um, these courses that were called, what were they called, S-courses, is that right? Oh, you're talking about completion rates. Completion rates, yeah. Okay, so so, um, tell me about these completion rates. Um, Brian, what, or, or Mark, maybe you're the best one to speak to that. Well, completion rates are how, how many students complete a course by passing. It's the difference between pass rate and completion rate, but essentially the completion rate is students who get a, a C, I think it was, or higher. It was either a C or higher, a D or higher in a course. That was They were considered to have completed the course okay. successfully. Um, but there was a lot were, of pressure liberty, at the school. A lot, a lot of pressure to keep that rate at 80%. You know, you, they want 80% in all courses, 80% in all courses for completion rate. And uh, the story I shared with you was that I went to the provost office uh, one day to make my report of our completion rates, and I was all excited because our general studies math was at a completion rate of 70%. Well, at the time, the national average for completion of, of, of freshman-level general studies math was 50, I think 55% or somewhere in that range. So we were 15, at least 15 points above that. I was so excited. I go in there, I report this, and I'm immediately shot down and told, well, that's too low. I said, well, <laughs> but this is 15 points higher than the national average. And the response I got was, we need it at 80%. So are you and saying there's pressure then to pass students who shouldn't be passing? There's pressure to get those rates up. And, and how that's translated by the individual deans, department, and professors, you know, that's it's going to be different for each one. But I can only, you can only assume that some people are going to, to save their jobs, as Brian was saying earlier, they, they look at these completion rates, not just per course, but per professor, or at least they did when we were there. Mm. And there's pressure to have your numbers show higher than 80%. Okay, let me throw that to Brian, because we just have a little bit of time. Can you corroborate that? Did you feel that too? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I can say on the online side, I saw that, uh, got that feeling talking to other professors, uh, because in, in the online side, it's as simple as we're just not going to give you another course. We don't even have to not renew your contract. You're just not going to get another course in the future. We'll give it to someone who will have a higher completion rate that makes them want to grade much more easily. And then also for the course creators, because the people who create the courses, if your course fails too many students, then you don't have a high enough completion rate. You may lose your job as an SME. And Mm -hmm. so there's constant pressure there to lower the standards uh, on the courses and make the assignments easier. Mm. Really briefly, because we just have about a minute, what's your hope for liberty, Brian? My hope for liberty? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I truly hope that liberty uh, liberty uh, realizes its original mission and rights itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, I'm kind of afraid it's going off the rail. Harvard and Princeton went off the rails to the left. Liberty doesn't seem to know where it's going. I, I would really like it to uh, get back to uh, Jerry Falwell Sr.'s BHAG, uh, as he called it, a big, hairy, audacious goal of being that true Christian university where you study uh, the biblical worldview from the ground up and everyone takes it seriously. Mm, Well, Brian, thank you so much. And I hate to cut you off, but we are running out of time. But it's always sad when we talk about corruption or about uh, Christian behavior that seems unchristian. And a lot of people say, well, why are we doing that? I mean, there's so much bad PR in the secular press. Why would we do that on Christian uh, radio? Well, I'll tell you why we need to talk about it. For one, judgment should start with the house of God. But secondly, Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Of all people, Christians should be the most committed to cleaning up their own house. So I hope you've been challenged by today's program. If you'd like to read the article cited today, I put an article on my website at julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, that has links to that. And again, at julieroys.com, you can get audio of this program. Again, thanks to my guests, Mark Tinsley, Brian Melton. Uh, hope you have a great weekend, and God bless.